I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today on the Debunking Economics podcast, we know the world is facing a massive pandemic. We've got over 7 million people infected. We're edging towards half a million deaths. In the US, 15 more million people are unemployed in the last few months. And the chief scientist at the World Health Organization is saying even with a cure, it could take five years to get this thing under control. And yet, despite all of that... We get this pretty good run on Watford over the past couple of sessions. The Dow is up over 400 points, up 438 here. S&P and Nasdaq also firmly in the green. The S&P is now up for 2020, including a 47.5% gain. That last voice was Jim Cramer on CNBC, and he's right. The S&P index is actually up this year. So is the Nasdaq. I'm Phil Dobby, and today on Debunking Economics, Professor Steve Keen and I look at what's really driving this stock market rally. Despite all the tailwinds, has the world gone share crazy? That's today on Debunking Economics. So, Steve, I mean, it's a curious thing. Shares have pretty much continued to rally pretty much throughout all of May and into June, despite what's going on. The Nasdaq, uh, I mean, all of them hit an all-time high in early January. The Nasdaq is now hitting a new all-time high, and the Dow and the S&P aren't far behind. And yet we've got 2 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 in America. That's about 1 in 200 people, close to 120,000 dead. And it looks like it's going to be stuck with them for quite some time. And yet people are still investing in shares as though, uh, you know, uh, confidence is at an all-time high. What's going on? Oh, it's business as usual, frankly, for the stock market. Um, this People always – you'll see the market was – was was the market is always sort of – what's with the expression of the anthropomorphism when the market is given a personality? Mm. The market shrugged off disappointing uh, unemployment numbers yeah, today. Yeah. Uh, or the market was wary of blah, 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 blah. They're always ex-post rationalisation. It's almost like a god unto itself, isn't yeah, it? You know, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, well, we all look to the market. Hail yeah, the market. That's right, and the biggest market of all is the stock market. And But, but mm. when you take a good look, and I mean a really good look, at how much does the market reflect the news, the answer is virtually not at all. Uh, and there's a, a wonderful book on the whole structure of the stock market by a guy called J. Peter Edgars, and it's called uh, the fractal markets hypothesis. And uh, that last word, hypothesis. Whoever invented the word hypothesis? Some, somebody, <laughs> I think it would be a myth one. Obviously, someone who wasn't Spanish. Yeah, yeah. Well, that probably was the, the Spanish king, quite possibly. Anyway, um, his book argues that the stock market is fundamentally a chaotic system. Uh, you have mm. a, a tiny amount of information coming in from the outside, and then all the volatility is driven on the inside of the market. And... When he he did a look at one one part of the book was to take a look at major historical events for the last century. I think the book was written in about I read it back in about two thousand, so around two thousand, looking back over the previous century. And when you look right. at the, so the Great Depression, two world wars, two world wars, that sort of yeah, stuff. yeah. Uh, mm. When you looked at the major events, 
half the time the market went in the opposite direction to what you might take as the implication of the news mm. for the market itself. The, 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 the main determinant of the market's volatility is the market itself and not the news coming in from the outside. And So it's just herd mentality, basically, yeah, people, yeah. people following... Following everyone else, well, it's, seeing it's, it's going it's, up. It's, a mix, it's partly herd mentality. It's a whole mix of things. I mean, one of the things which is the clearest part of what drives the stock market is margin debt. And uh, mm. I think we may have talked about this once before, but I have uh, you know, one of my arguments about what causes asset prices is the change in the new debt that's used to purchase them. And, of course, margin debt is what people buy shares with. And the relationship between change in the new margin debt and change in the stock market is quite strong. So but that what that reflects partly is a combination of things, people's you know, leverage in general, but willingness to speculate as well. You, you borrow money to buy shares when you believe shares are going to go up. And there's an enormous amount of margin, margin selling, margin buying in, in the stock market. Uh, and my favorite instance of that was looking at the correlation of margin debt as a percentage of GDP to the highs and lows of the stock market. And it was a very long time, it was very low because margin debt was pretty much banned after the Great Depression. Uh, but it reached peaks of about 3% of GDP in each of 2000, 2007, and pretty much now. So people are borrowing money to gamble on the market going up. Now, the biggest level of margin debt ever reached was 12% of GDP, and that was pretty much on Black Friday in uh, yeah. 1929. And it then fell to 1% of GDP and took the market down with it. But would you be doing that right now? Would you be would you be building up your debt given the way the world is? I mean, and and related to that, doesn't this really show this? You know, the, the the big the big discrepancy between the haves and the have-nots. The fact that there are people struggling to survive through all of this, you know, financially, mm. and on the other side, there's people who are saying, "Oh, well, a great opportunity for us to invest in the share market to have yeah. the to have access to the funds to be able to do that." Yeah, irrespective I mean, of what's going yeah. on. I mean, the usual mythology about the market reflecting what's happening is basically saying news is coming in from the outside, and the market interprets that and puts it into the valuation of, of assets, which is seen as a, a sensible and indeed mm. necessary part of a world functioning capitalist economy. But one of the economists who knew the most about the stock market and how ridiculous it was was one John Maynard Keynes, because he actually got involved in some speculation, partly on his own uh, benefit and partly for King's College in Cambridge. And in a wonderful, one of the many wonderful anecdotes, he described himself as a speculator who'd lost two fortunes and made three. And he was successful in the final stages of his dabbling in the market because he simply gave up on the idea that it was the market was reflecting the news. And he made this wonderful mm. analogy of the market to the game of um, musical chairs, um, where, you know, you, 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 you've got to be running when the music is playing. You want to sit down when it stops. Uh, and as a, there's basically an internal panic at all times to, to be the, yeah. the first in and the first out. But he made the analogy to what um, a, a, a beauty contest where he said, the object is not is we we have a newspaper contest. This is back in the old days of you know, happily sexist newspapers, of course, uh, where you have a, a prize which is awarded to the person who guesses the six most attractive faces out of a assembly of a hundred faces. And he said the winner is not the person who picks the six objectively most beautiful people, nor is it the person who picks the average guess of what the six most attractive people are. 
You said, the victor is a person who guesses what the average person will think the average person thinks is the most right. attractive person. Yeah, and yeah. he called it the madness yeah. of the third degree. And that pretty so, much I mean, applies to the stock market. Yeah, I mean, and, and I have spoken to so many people who invest in the share market and say, well, what's going on? And, uh, and first of all, people go, oh, well, and they make excuses, it seems like, uh, well, they're seeing through the current situation because it's, it's forward looking they're looking at what happens next that's one excuse and the other one is yeah I don't know it's crazy but uh, I'm just going to go with the flow because everybody else is and, uh, and and you know and then you look for the technical signs that it's about to turn as you know as, as you were indicating that you know the moment it, it, it starts to turn then everyone tries to, to bail out so the idea that because uh, I have this old fashioned idea that maybe shares are somehow related to the intrinsic value of the companies that uh, that they relate to how foolish am I for that kind of thinking? Well, you're, you're foolish enough to get a PhD in economics. Congratulations. Would you like me to send it by <laughs> mail order or by ship? Um, because just, uh, I don't care if it gets lost on the way, by the way, so however you want to send it. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll send it by Turkey in that case. It'll get faster by Turkey than any other means of transportation right now. Particularly the Turkish says, I have COVID, I have COVID. Have you been speaking? Um, you speaking yeah, again? It's, it is mainstream economic theory came out with the argument that the stock market is a risky asset where the value of the market reflects the value of the shares get on the market reflects people's expectations of its returns over time and the volatility of those returns. So the efficient mm. markets hypothesis, blah, another time, uh, was, was this argument that uh, you have a choice of invest- investing in a riskless asset, which they took as long-term government bonds, where there's a guaranteed rate of return but no volatility in the asset, or risky assets, which are basically shares, which will give you a higher return but come with a higher volatility. And yeah. the argument was that, well, what you actually put the valuation, the valuation of a share reflects the net present value of the rationally expected income stream of the investments over time. Now, that... Uh, was an incredibly popular argument with economists because it basically it, it justified the market, said the market is efficient. That's where the term the efficient market hypothesis came from. And it's been roundedly rejected by the data, absolutely thrown out of court by the data. But, hey, let's continue believing it because it's an essential part of how we think markets actually operate. Well, if you look at the NASDAQ, for example, as I say, at an all-time high, high now, the price-to-earnings ratio is 27 right now. But over the last 10 years, and I've been looking at it, trying to relate it to events, it's gone from 9.4 to 115.3. And it was actually at the, the highest rate late last year when uh, when we had this sort of like this, this this big rally. So it bears no relation to anything whatsoever. So yeah. it's, it, it's acting. It's acting in it. So so if it's not uh, if it's not there uh, to to create a uh, a, a rational pricing of uh, of companies. What is the point of it? Should we uh, sort of do you just throw it away and start again with something else? Well, I think we I think we wish we could because I mean the the, the two arguments that are given in favour of the stock market as as a as a major institution in a capitalist economy is one price discovery, the one you've just talked about there, where yep. it tells you the correct price to have for capital assets. The second justification is that it raises capital. Um, so, you know, companies issue shares on the stock market and those shares are then uh, used to provide working capital or innovation for the company itself. And that would be a very valid reason to have a stock market if that's what a stock market actually did. But the vast majority of trading in the market is in what's, we call, what are called secondary shares, shares that have already been issued by the company and are being sold by one speculator to another speculator and get provide precisely zero capital back 
to the original firm. So what, what actually gives you capital is what you, know, what you call the initial public offerings uh, or, yeah. or new issues of new shares, which you would have seen Tesla talking about doing that when its share price was at an all-time high not so long ago uh, as a way of getting extra capital for the company. So if the company itself says the shares into the market and it's bought off the market by individuals or uh, in, uh, companies and so on, then that does generate uh, working capital for the firm that's involved, and that's a worthwhile thing. But in fact, that's if it, if, it, if that's five percent of the market, you'd be lucky. It's probably below that level. And in fact, mm. the level of uh, the, the use of the share market to actually buy back a company's own shares and cancel them, which has been a major fetish of the last 10 years, is substantially yeah. greater than the issuance of new capital. Because it boosts the options for the executives in those companies. But those those companies right now which are struggling and are saying, oh, we need bailouts from the government, I mean, surely they, they you know, the easiest way for them to make money right now is to say, well, look, our share prices are so high, the market is so strong despite everything, let's just issue new shares. We don't need to issue that many because the prices are so high. Yeah, the, the one, one thing about the market is that it tends to be much less broad than people think. I mean, uh, there's an expectation, particularly with, with asset markets in general, this is one part of Minsky's financial instability hypothesis, uh, um, which is that um, when you have a, a boom going on, the boom will drive up the cost of, cost of finance and corporations that have actually been investing uh, with, a, with a conservative bent to their, to their approach, what Minsky calls hedge or hedge, hedge, a hedge firm he defines as one which can meet its, uh, its commitments out of current cash flow. A speculative mm-hmm. one, he says, can't meet them right now. They've got to borrow more money to keep going, but they expect in the, in the short term to have uh, enough revenue coming out of investment to more than pay off their, um, their cost of borrowing so far. But he calls Ponzi's have no chance of ever paying back the debt they've taken on and they rely upon a rising stock market. And he makes the case that when you have a boom going on, uh, the, you know, money starts pouring into the market uh, and it starts driving up the cost of capital as well. You get more expensive money as, as, as the amount of money being used for, for, for stock market activity rises. And this will, the cost, increasing cost of finance will cause some firms that are the hedge firms to decide that it's now more expensive than they thought. So they'll sell some shares to try to raise some additional revenue. And what they do mm. is by selling the shares rather than buying, they prick the bubble and the thing comes tumbling down. The market is yeah. much less broad than we think it is. And that's partly why there's well, enormous volatility. Right. But but we're, but we're propping it up, aren't we, really, at the moment? I mean, if you, if you look at the example of... Uh, of short selling. I mean, if, if we're looking at price discovery, and you and I spoke about short selling, I asked you whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. And you actually said, well, it's not a bad thing because actually it helps with price discovery. You're sort of like you're, you're betting in, in each direction. So you'd be thinking the smart money right now would be selling short against the bubble because people would be saying, well, this is all a bit crazy. But in some places, short selling has been banned during this crisis for precisely that reason. Now, that decision to ban short selling is only there to help the finance sector. Nobody else gains from that, do they? Um, no, they don't. And like, um, it's it's. Um, I mean, this this is partially the fact that the Federal Reserve, in particular, ever since the financial crisis back in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, has regarded part of its role as rescuing the stock market. And in fact, it goes right back to Alan and Alan Greenspan in nineteen eighty seven. Like he was only in the chair for a matter of a couple of months, I think, when the 87 stock market crash occurred. And he came out 
and did and did what is now called the Greenspan push. He basically said, we're going to back all financial corporations. And within a short mm-hmm. while, that, that, that particular crash was the biggest one-day crash in the history of the stock market. I think it still holds that title, 20% fall in one day. Okay. Uh, but yeah. he then... Uh, you know, provided enough finance to mean the corporations which were would otherwise have gone bankrupt because of that fall could continue to operate. And then people started talking about the Greenspan put. Whenever the market was going to crash, Greenspan would come in and rescue it. Bernanke did that in steroids when, during the financial crisis. And then we've had QE. And the whole objective of QE has been to drive up share prices. If you read the documents mm-hmm. arguing for it, and Bernanke had a hand in writing these, Part of the argument was if we drive share prices up, then people will feel more wealthy and they will spend more and that will stimulate the economy. Now, yeah. uh, There'll also be more tax paid as well. I mean, you can't help thinking part of it will be governments will say that's great because we're going to get more capital gains tax and so not more that, revenue for the government as well. Not, not that a lot of that turns up. <laughs> there are so mm. many the, the loopholes for capital it, gains tax in to theory, fall through. Absolutely. There's always yeah. a loophole. But in theory, you could, you could argue that would be a rationale for saying that's why we're doing it because it helps mm. government revenue ultimately. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't particularly top up in the minds of people like uh, Hank Paulson. No, absolutely. <laughs> Mr. Goldman Sachs. So uh, is part of it as well the fact that money has to go somewhere? So people who've got some money have got to put it somewhere. And they can either they can put it in, into shares or they can buy bonds or they can buy currencies. But if they buy bonds, then they're going to influence uh, interest rates on bonds. If they buy different currencies, they're going to uh, influence uh, forex rates. So whatever you do with money, there's a consequence, isn't it? If you put it in, uh, you put it in shares, you push the share price up. If you put it in bonds, you influence bond prices. If you put it in in, in foreign currencies, you you influence forex. It's almost like it's like at a time like this, there's not an option to say, well, let's just park the money and see, get over this crisis, and not see any consequence from any of this. There's not an option to do that other than sticking yeah, well, it under the mattress, and then you're taking yeah, out the and, money supply. So yeah, that's and a what they're too. what they're doing, and I mean. A large part of this, again, is people will be looking at what's happening and saying, what's the Fred going to do? Because this is, I mean, the market has been ruled by, particularly the American market, obviously. And the American market, and to some extent, the European market, have been ruled by their respective central banks' quantitative easing programs. Because you know that they're going to yeah. be like, in the case of the Americans, they are buying a trillion dollars worth of bonds every year off the financial sector. But therefore, the financial sector was getting converting a trillion dollars worth of bonds into a trillion dollars worth of non-income earning cash. And what would they do? Buy shares. That was the whole intention of making them mm. do that. Now, mm. we, we, if you were a stock market speculator and you saw the crash in the market hitting because of the coronavirus, you know, this is the sort of gambling you'd go on with. Well, what's going to happen? The Fed's going to come back and rescue it again. QE will happen. It's a good time to buy shares. Well, um, and then so, you get a- so isn't that exactly what's happening now then? Because we know QE is, is big. Yeah. It's going to be around for a long time. There's no way in the world central banks anywhere are going to allow interest rates to to rise. I mean, they're talking about yield control, so that you know that the, they're basically doing what they have to do to keep interest rates low. I think the the rationale behind that is so that you know people aren't going to be penalised, including governments, when they're paying off debt. So that's with us possibly for the rest of our life. I think it is. I mean, I, I did when it first was happening. I described this as a pact with the devil. If you sign a contract with the devil, it's pretty hard to say you want a revision. <laughs> or it'll take it to a court of appeal. You know, I'm sorry, you might be appealing, but you're not going to get very far. And and this is what's happened. The 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 initial uh, dive into um, quantitative easing uh, was was actually occurred not so much during the 
the, the first really huge increase in reserves was back during the, um, uh, the crisis itself because Bernanke took his own advice seriously after he'd ignored it for some time and pumped money by, by, by flooding banks with excess reserves. Now, the scale of this is still something which, I mean, it's quite an amazing graph to see. Uh, there's a graph of the excess reserves of depository institutions uh, held by the St. Louis Fred. And if anybody wants to find the Fred database, it's uh, ridiculously easy to find this stuff. It, the actual um, abbreviation is E-X-C-S-R-E-S-N-S, excess reserves of their whatever NS. So there's a lot. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've looked at that St. Louis Fed, their Fred databases, they call it. There's a lot of good yeah. stuff in there. It's brilliant. But mm. you see, you, you go way back, like back to 1965, excess reserves, $737 million. Uh, you go forward to 2007, August, four, $4 billion, not a large increase over that period of time. You go to July, $1.8 billion. That's August 2008. You get to September, $59 billion. You get to November, uh, $622 billion. Uh, that was an enormous increase in injection of money by the Fed. And then they began quantitative easing, which drove those excess reserves from pretty much zero, as they were beforehand, to $2.69 trillion. Now, from that point on, they decided, oh, well, it's time to, you know, we've done this great contract with the devil. Now let's negotiate our way out of it. And they started cutting the reserves, various various mechanisms for that, some of which were unintentional, until we got down to a low of $1.4 trillion uh, back in September of 2019. And then we get on to February, $1.5 trillion. Have a guess what it is now. Oh, way more than that. I don't know. Double, factory, 3.2 yeah, trillion. Factory two or three, yeah, yeah. 3.2. Three so, so this huge injection of money and by is the there, Fed. Is the, Don't on. fight the Fed. No, well, is there any way back from that? Because, I mean, there's, there's consequences, obviously. On the one is people are putting money into shares. Retirement funds, for example, are, are putting many, money in. I, I mean, are we uh, overestimating just uh, like our, our Social Security, particularly our, our pensions? If, if, they, if they keep on getting higher and then at some point there is a crash, then everyone pays the pays the price on that, and that if that is a consequence of the the actions by the Fed, then that's a you know are they are they destroying the potential for future um, pension benefits because they are overinflating the the stock market? Is that a danger of what they're doing? Do I they think it can? is a danger, and this is one of the few times I'll turn Austrian and say that I'd like to abolish the Fed over this given its behaviour because it's seen its 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 role has gone from managing the money supply to managing the valuation of cap of, of uh, financial assets, in particular the value of shares. Mm. And I, this this you know it's been extremely successful because they have a limitless budget. Uh, they, they one thing I like about QE is it lets me explain to people that you don't have to tax in order to spend. They'll say, well, the Fed was spending a trillion dollars a year uh, paying for uh, buying bonds off the financial sector. What was your what tax did you pay for that? And I get a quizzical look back and I'll say, exactly, you didn't pay any bloody taxes, which just an accounting operation. And so long as they've got control of the country's books, which of course they have by definition, they can create as much money as they like and they pump all that money into the financial sector. So, duh, the level of financial markets has risen. And there's no way out of this, is there? Because, you, I mean, you would have thought there would be a fear factor of what would happen if share prices fall, if share prices collapse, what is the contagion that that has on the, on the rest of the economy? But it seems that that's just not going to be allowed to happen. The Fed will do yeah. whatever. It, it'll just do more QE if it thinks that's going to push up uh, share prices again. 
It is, and that's why I think we're getting this. This is not a corner out of which you can walk easily. I think the only way out of this is a policy which I'll push quite a few times, and of course I never thought would happen. It's now slightly more likely, and that's a modern debt jubilee. Mm. Do something which means you can reduce the valuation of share markets without destroying the money supply and without destroying the financial sector in, in the same step. That's going to be a popular move with everyone who's holding these inflated share prices. I mean, it's, it's like no, very unpopular with them. Popular, yeah. Pop- <laughs> But there's a lot of the population, and, they, and as I say, that's pension funds. I mean, it's almost impossible to do because you're destroying pension funds. Yeah. So directly yeah. or indirectly, you're affecting everybody. Yeah, I know there's a bit of an extension of the old story about, you know, if you owe the bank $100, you have a problem. If you owe the bank a million dollars, the bank has a problem. In this <laughs> case, uh, with the stock market being driven by the Federal Reserve to the tunes of trillions, it's the Fed that has a problem if the market goes down and the Fed dies back in and rescues it again. So it really has made a mockery. Uh, even as badly as the as the market actually reflected reality, the Fed has taken it one step further with QE. So should they have just not done QE? Should, I mean, was it a mistake from the start? They should, yeah, it was a mistake from the start. They I should mean, not be. Uh, they should not be printing money in effect to buy government bonds. Is that what we're saying? Well, that they should be buying government bonds off the treasury to finance things like the, the you know, Corona bonds, which I've been arguing for for some yeah. time as well, along with many others. Um, they should be doing that. They should be financing government expenditure. But what they're doing instead is maintaining the valuation of the stock market and the financial sector. And we have a financial sector which is far too big. Uh, it should be about one, at least, at best, about one third the size that it is right now. But because the Fed's got caught up in the, with the Greenspan put through to Bernanke's rescue, through to QE, and now the coronavirus, uh, they see their role first and foremost is making sure the stock market goes up. Mm. And rather, we, we're getting, yeah. We, rather you know, than saying, well, how much, how much do we need to, to buy from the government so the government's got enough spending on uh, to see yeah. through this? Because I guess the, I mean, the, the, this is the discrepancy that's created as well, isn't it? If, you, if, the, if there was no interference from the central bank, and you had government bonds and you had shares, you'd say, well, okay, I'm going to buy shares if I believe that that, invest, that that company is going to go up because the company is doing better. Mm. Or I'm going to buy government bonds because I can see there's a need within the economy for greater spending, for example, on infrastructure to help those companies along. You wouldn't I mean, do it for that reason. You'd, you'd give because you're gambling that uh, – well, you'd be buying bonds because you're getting out of danger access into, into safe ones. But the money, That's but what the, you'd be doing. Right, okay, for sure. But the, the ultimate effect is that that money is going to be used for infrastructure projects or, or for government projects. So it's a question of the, the, the balance between how much money is spent on, on, on government projects versus how much money is spent on – on private companies, and uh, so you get an allocate, almost getting an allocation of resources uh, 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 appropriate to what the economy needs. In theory, uh, I know it doesn't work in reality, and certainly doesn't work in reality when the central bank is there saying, "Well, okay, we're uh, we're going to start buying those bonds," so so you can throw any theory out the window. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be better, but it's, it's better, but still bad. But I think what we've got now is the worst of both worlds. We have a, a market which is driven by its own internal dynamics more so than it's driven by the real world. We have a Fed intervening in that market to drive its prices even higher in a way that makes the only sensible place to put your money is on share gambling, gambling on share prices rather than building your own uh, corporate investments. And we now have every time there's a crash, the first response of the Fed is to rescue the stock market rather than rescuing the real world. So I think we're at a, a very deep impasse here. So, I mean, surely that can't go on forever. You can't have share, the share price going up faster than gross domestic product for a country ad nauseum. I mean, that just can't happen. There's got to be a major Well, it has happened. 
It, it, mm. it has happened. It's been corrected in the past. I mean, if you look at uh, the best index to see just how overvalued the stock market is, is Robert Schiller's uh, uh, cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio, the CAPE ratio, it's called. And that's actually extremely easy to find again. Uh, for people looking at it, it's multpl.com slash Schiller dash PE. Uh, but just search for the Schiller case index and you'll find it. And what he does with that is he compares the current price value of the S&P 500 to the dividends over the previous 10 years of the companies in the S&P 500. And what that does, it removes a lot of the very short-term volatility and it gets rid of the firms which are just Ponzi schemes. So Enron, for example, doesn't even turn up in the data. I don't think it lasted 10 years. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a much more realistic way of saying just how overvalued our shares right now. And the long-term value of that index is 16.72. That includes the massive overvaluations of Black Tuesday when it hit 30 to 1, the 2000 stock market bubble when it hit 45 to 1, and at the moment when it's back to pretty much the same level as the as Black Tuesday in the Great Depression, 29.95, only slightly down from the peak it had a matter of about, about six months ago. So we have an enormous level of overvaluation. But again, the, the, if you look at the section where the Fed has taken over, that at that stage when the Fed dived in to rescue the market from QE, the value of the index was 15. I mentioned the mean was 16.72, including those periods of overvaluation. So the Fed started pushing the market up when it had only just returned back to a pretty much its average level for the last century. And they've driven it up to the absolute peak that it had reached in the absence of the of the, the Fed's intervention, with the sole exception of the 2000 bubble. So we have a, a Fed which is trying to make the stock market continue rising. And because they have limitless funds to do it, they can probably achieve that while the real economy goes to hell in a handbasket. So couldn't companies then that are saying, well, look, we need to go to the government for for bailouts like airlines and car companies and the like. I mean, they could be, okay, the, the, the side effect of them saying, well, our share prices are elevated right now. Well, less so for airlines, but even they're starting to come back as well because people are seeing through the crisis to those happy days when we're all going to start flying again, apparently. Mm. Uh, so the share market's investing in airlines again. So, I mean, those Airline companies could be saying, "Well, okay, yeah, well, let's issue new stock, and uh, okay, it's going to uh, that, that that means that share prices are going to fall if everyone starts to do that." But as you're saying, the Fed, well, the Fed won't allow that to happen. So, so the share price, so they'll be helping to uh, to uh, with QE to push that share price up, and people go, "Well, good, let's do that again. Let's issue even more shares," um, mm. you know, and and we get the cash at a high price helps us through the crisis. Why is that not happening? I wonder. Yeah, well, I think because again, you, you, because the actual physical investment opportunities that are out there are pretty damn limited. The only reason you've issued your shares right now is to finance a share buyback, which is a bit ironic. So, um, I mean, in terms of investment opportunities, um, with the exception of, you know, outrageous things like, uh, SpaceX and so on, there isn't much in the way of investment opportunities right now, but speculative opportunities abound. And that's why this gambling on the stock market seems to be going on indefinitely. And it's not going to collapse them. We're not. Uh, I can see falls, but again, the Fed's going to dive back to the rescue. I mean, that that figure of excess reserves, which is just a real giveaway mm. for the for the behaviour of the market, of the behaviour of the Fed in response to the market. You know, one point five trillion in December. Uh, we're about to are we? One point five trillion in February. March, it's uh, one point nine. April, it's two point nine. May, it is three point two. 
that is just all money being pumped in to keep the stock market up. Well, damn it, yeah. if it's going to work. And then you've got optimism. You've got the attitude of uh, of the market, this strange beast that behaves in it, its own individual way. And we'll keep on talking about it in the third person and and make excuses for the, the impact of the Fed saying, well, the, the market is feeling positive right now. The market's in a good place. The market's feeling very happy. The market, the market had a bit of a cold, but it's uh, it's back to running twice a day now. Mm. Good on the market. The market is a junkie. Well, may, maybe not the market, maybe just everybody who's uh, investing in it. Good to talk, Steve. We will catch you again very soon. Thank you. Okay. There is something intrinsically wrong, isn't there, with the idea that those with money to invest seem to be sailing through the greatest economic crisis of our lifetimes, whilst those who do real work for a living are often struggling to find that real work. Well, next time, we look at how governments and central banks are injecting stimulus into their economies, cash into bank accounts, interest-free loans, and in Australia's case, even a payout for home extensions. Are they doing the right thing? And what about propping up companies? Should we do that or should we let them fail? We'll look at all of that next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. See you then. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.